Welcome to the MHW Mark podcast, where we take deep dives into various aspects of the alcohol industry. My name is Jimmy Moreland. MHW is a U.S. and EU beverage alcohol importer, distributor, and service provider. Today, we're doing something a little different. Earlier this month, MHW held their annual Trends and Forecasts webinar. MHW CEO Ryan O'Hara and a full panel of experts, many of whom will be familiar to listeners of this podcast, sat down to share data, insights, analysis, and forecasts of what they expect in 2024. The webinar ran for over an hour, but on this podcast, you'll hear a cut-down version of just the best bits. So if you missed it live, here's your chance to get the most important takeaways. So without further ado, we'll jump right in. The next voice you hear will be the panel host, Women of the Vine and Spirits CEO, Deborah Brenner, who will lead us into further introductions. Welcome to the MHW live chat. So we're thrilled to be here. And uh, we're going to be talking today about what will 2024 bring, forecasts and trends from the MHW executive team. Definitely kicking 2024 off. I can't believe it's already uh, February 8th. Uh, for those that don't know me, I'm Deborah Brenner. I'm the founder and CEO of Women of the Vine and Spirits and also Diverse Powered Brands. Thrilled to have our corporate member here, MHW, with us. I am going to be joined today by uh, Ryan O'Hara, Chief Executive Officer, MHW, Scott Saul, Executive Vice President, Marianne Pisani, Chief Revenue Officer, and Ian Perez, Brand Execution Manager. I'm going to let them introduce just a little bit about themselves. Ryan, do you want to uh, kick things off? Sure. Thanks, Deborah. And hey, everyone, thanks for joining today. Looking forward to the conversation. I'm Ryan O'Hara, uh, CEO for MHW. I've been with MHW for about six years now. And uh, prior to, to joining the team here, spent my career in financial services wearing a bunch of different hats. And I will pass the mic over to Marianne. Thanks, Ryan. Hi, nice to see everyone here. It's great to see some faces on camera as well. Um, I'm Marianne Pisani. I'm the Chief Revenue Officer. I'm responsible for new business and client happiness and retention. And I have been with MHW in various roles for almost 27 years. So I've been here since uh, basically around the start of the company. So I'm happy to be here and talk about this uh, interesting topic today. And I'll kick it over to Scott Saul. Good morning, everyone. Scott Saul here, Executive Vice President of MHW. Uh, I'm with the company 27 plus years. I oversee all regulatory compliance related matters here at MHW. Just for visibility, I'm not an attorney. I don't play one on TV, so I will not be dispensing any legal advice today. And Ian. My name is Ian Perez. I'm the Brand Execution Manager at MHW. I've been working in procurement and supply chain for my 13th year and fifth year at MHW, and I help our clients who are developing new brands, and I also offer supply chain services for existing brands as well. Fantastic. And I love hearing about everybody's tenure at MHW because prior to me starting Women in the Vine and Spirits, I was in the supplier side, and MHW was actually my uh, my wholesaler at the time, way back when, I think that was like 2007. So, <laughs> you know, long, long time ago, come full circle in the industry, right? But thrilled to be here to, today to talk about these trends. I think um, let's dive in because that's what everybody's here wanting to understand more. Question for all I'm going to pose to the, the panelists. 
In your experience, what did 2023 bring for the beverage alcohol brands? Ryan, do you want to, uh, to start? Sure. Yeah, I'll kick us off here. You know, looking back on 2023, it really was one of the, the more challenging years that, that beverage alcohol as an industry has faced. I mean, going back decades and coming into the year, we were just coming off dealing with the height of the supply chain crisis and, and really high inflation. Uh, and fortunately, we've seen some relief on parts of that with, with supply chain. Inflation still sticking around. And in 23, you know, really it's a lackluster consumer demand. The pressure is put on the consumer and we're seeing a, a rising cost environment, increasing interest rates, inventory challenges that we'll get into a little bit. Um, ultimately, this resulted in, in stagnant volumes, looking at it year over year where, you know, our total servings of beverage alcohol shipped in the U.S. declined by a little over 5%. And you saw a lot of markets globally uh, have challenging years. With that said, not all doom and gloom. You know, dollar sales were still up overall as a category uh, year over year. Uh, this points to BevAlk still being a really resilient uh, industry, especially in an environment that was tougher for the consumer. That, that's still a preference in their spending there. And, you know, innovation's alive and well, and there's a lot of exciting areas for growth. So I, I think still some, some, some really good things to take from the years, too. Absolutely. I think, like you say, Ryan, we want to balance it, right? It's not all doom and gloom. There's opportunity, right? So that's what today is to talk about where are those pockets of opportunity within some of the challenges. And uh, Marianne, we'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Right. So, you know, it was still talking about coming out of the pandemic, right? And one of the big things we learned during the pandemic was that the consumer wants to see ready to drinks, right? And ready to drinks just continue their takeover. The category is expected to reach 21.1 billion in value by 2027. And unfortunately, 2027 is not that far away anymore, right? Like I first looked at that statistic and I was like, oh, it's like 10 years from now. But unfortunately, it's not, right? So we're, we're on the heels of 2030 when we start thinking about where we are in time. So they've grown faster than any other segment. And also seeing the same things that we're seeing in the standard um, categories, we're seeing premiumization, right? We're seeing higher prices. We're seeing a lot of new products, a lot of innovation. We're seeing line extensions from standard, you know, brands that we all know and love. So it's creating a whole new category and a whole new consumer. ABVs are getting a little higher on these. And yes, I just saw the question pop up. Yeah, that was the U.S. market. Sorry, I should have said that. So seeing a lot more spirit-based offerings, higher ABVs and higher prices. So this is definitely an area that we all have to watch. And I think it can, it can help the growth of the usual suspects because people get familiar with them by having the RTD and then wanting to try the product on its own. You know, these line extensions, I think, are really helpful. So that's what I think was a one of the biggest takeaways from 23. Wonderful. Scott, do you have some thoughts you want to add to that? There is on the on the beverage alcohol side, there is sometimes a, a little bit of a wink and a nod to, to cannabis, where obviously cannabis is not allowed in beverage alcohol, but you'll see more and more products that will be, you know, with hemp seed or hemp seed oil. So what I call a wink and a nod to the cannabis trend that you see in non-alcoholic beverages. 
Yeah, and you know, we just came back from WSWA, and I think that's the very first time that they had a section in the exhibits of hemp yeah. of yeah, beverages. That, that was going to be. I was going to touch on that later in the in the program, just to mention that exact thing where you did not see that in the past. Uh, no, that's okay. Did not see that in the past where you see that now. There was a whole, almost a whole aisle of non-alcoholic beverages with cannabis in it. Um, and there are some, obviously some famous people involved in it, like Cheech and Chong, if you're all old, uh, old enough to know who those are. So uh, who they are. <laughs> yes, my college days, those, that's, I'm showing my age, just do the math, right? Yeah. But absolutely, Scott, we're seeing some really interesting things there that we ne never thought we'd see. You know, people, they're joking with us because they're like, what about women of the vine and spirits and beer? And I'm like, yeah, we have beer. Now I'm going to have to add hemp and weed. And the name's just going to keep, you know, growing. So that that's definitely coming up. Uh, Ian, you have some thoughts on no and low alcohol as well. Yeah, just to add to that, um, 2023 was a good year for, for low and no, um, like an increase in options across all categories led to a lot more retail opportunities and drivers for um, revenue streams with the retailers as well. So yeah, there's a lot of innovation on that side too, which Marianne touched upon as well. Um, and yeah, we speak, think this is definitely going to keep growing in 2024 also. Absolutely. So I, I think, you know, like we said, we're here to talk about opportunities. Uh, but we're also here to talk about some challenges and how we're going to face them, how we're going to kind of pivot around them and everything. And one of those is inflation, right? And Ryan, you touched on it before, just saying about the different challenges. Supply chain inflation is here. How do you feel, Ryan, that inflation is impacting each tier of the three-tier system? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Deborah. So, you know, interestingly, BevAlk overall is one of the least inflated items relative to core consumer product goods since the pandemic, but it's still a big challenge. And each category and different channels are having different experiences. So when you think about beer, you know, wine and spirits, you know, beer seen a significantly more higher increase in price relative to wine and spirits, but I think you may see that start to shift as we go forward some. And then you know, the, the big thing to call out is the pressure inflation is putting on the consumer. Um, it's a headwind across all tiers. You know, and it's not just that higher prices lead to lower demand. You know, if we look at from 2021 to 2023, food and beverage cost for at-home consumption for the consumer were up almost 20%, but average hourly wages are only up 14%. So you're seeing the squeeze on consumers. And that comes through in in overall spend, but just some of that, you know, premiumization trends and things that we're going to have to think about there, you know, and, and Sovos ship compliance 2023 DTC wine report, you know, bottles under $30 declined almost 13% and bottles over $100 were up, you know, five and a half percent. And you're seeing this in, in other categories too. Thinking about producers uh, in that tier, you know, rising input costs is, is, is just something that's continued to have to be managed very closely. You're feeling it at labor, big increases in energy costs, raw materials going in, those challenges in the supply chain that eats into margins. And you're 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 mixing this with an environment where demand forecast is more challenging. And so, you know, as a producer, you'd love to maybe, you know, invest into the equipment that can help with that that energy expense or, you know, move forward in the sustainability and green energy trends that we see, but those are large outlays of cash and you have to be really thoughtful about when and where you're spending. 
Wholesalers seeing similar pressures uh, from inflation, right? Rising rent, labor, and ultimately this all rolls through into a, a higher price for the end consumer. On-premise has been able to pass that along the most. You know, dollar sales had a double-digit growth in 2023. And then alongside inflation with rising costs, we have the higher interest rates and this exasperates the challenges. So as the cost of capital goes up for everyone, what we're really seeing is that wholesalers and retailers are, are gonna have to think more critically about inventories. And you know, as we got to the middle of 2023, we saw that you know, wholesale inventory relative to dollar sales was at all-time highs. Now thinking about an interest rate at three or four percent your carrying cost of inventory for a wholesaler, that might be 5% of their operating profit somewhere around there. At 8%, you know, that could increase to 3X, 5X, right? So it becomes really significant. Where the opportunity lies here, I think, is just really focusing on communication between the tiers, right? Thinking about staying focused on your core value proposition, thinking about your total SKUs, and, and and being thoughtful around demand generation or demand forecasting. Absolutely, yeah. A lot, a lot, like you say, communication. I think is going to be key here for a lot of people, making sure that they're maintaining, um, talking to everybody, so that they can they can all manage it properly. This is a question I'd like to pose to to the group. Um, how do you think wine and beer will perform this year? What can wine and beer brands do to keep up with the spirits category? Because we're seeing, you know, wine definitely getting hit with a lot of, you know, articles about the decline in consumption. Ian, would you like to start off with that? Um, so, yeah, you're seeing younger generations are definitely opting for more ready-to-drink cocktails and low-no over wine. Um, and that's creating like, a lot of options and appeal for the Gen Z audience, especially. Um, so non-alcoholic beers, you're going to see a lot of success kind of tapping into that space. And especially in terms of like direct-to-consumer, you're going to see a lot more consumers opting for beer and spirits and RTDs. However, like with DTC wine shipment volume down overall, like you expect like light beer and fine wines are expected to continue to succeed in, in 2024. So there's definitely like definitely areas there that capture for 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 those folks to kind of catch up on that ground lost. Mm-hmm. Scott, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, Ian, Ian touched on it a little bit in terms of uh, DTC. Uh, consumers are beginning to opt for beer, spirits, and RTDs, which decreases wine success in that space. Um, although DTC wine shipments uh, volumes are down overall, the 100-plus uh, category has increased. Uh, like beer, high-end wines are expected to continue to succeed in 2024. Great. I'm just going to jump to a question from the attendees. Um, so I'm going to jump over there for a minute. Talking about, like you're talking about beer wine, we have Florencia asking about how do you visualize for the mezcal category in 2024? I think... Uh, we're seeing the continued growth of tequila and mezcal over and above uh, the growth of other categories tremendously. You know, one of the few categories that really saw growth last year. So I think that's a really good sign. I think all Latin American products are definitely having a, a will have a good year this year. And I think mezcal is one of those really interesting cocktail bases that the consumer is leaning towards. So I, I, I'm seeing that as a very positive growth category. I would echo that, Marianne, and it's hard to go into a bar or restaurant with a good cocktail menu and not see mezcal as the base 
and a number of the signature cocktails. Um, so I don't think that's shifting. You know, uh, everyone enjoys a nice uh, smoky mezcal uh, cocktail. I know I do. Um, and so, you know, you saw that category tequila mezcal grow almost 8% in 2023. The key thing there is, is the, the competition, right? The hot categories bring in a lot of new entrants. And so there, there's a there's a fight to stand out inside of it. Yeah, and, and if you were at the WSW in Vegas, the exhibit floor bears that out. There are a lot of new tequilas and mezcals uh, on display. Some you probably have never heard of. Some of them might not even be here at this point, but uh, you'll see a lot of that. Absolutely. Like you said, you know, when it's a hot category, a lot of people are trying to enter that space, just creating a lot of competition. You really have to differentiate yourself to, you know, stand out in the yeah. crowd. Yeah, they may they may be running out of celebrities, though. I think every celebrity is getting into the game. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, I know we're talking about beer and wine, uh, you know, basically having some tough recent years. One of the questions from Billy on, on the group is, um, and, and Ryan, maybe you, you can answer this. I've also been hearing beer distributors are taking up spirit RTDs um, to, you know, for sales and making themselves relevant. Um, do you have any thoughts uh, for the group on that? Yeah, sure. It, it's interesting. I, I think we're going to continue to see this trend and, and not just for spirit or RTD, but just kind of reshaping and, and, and rethinking how to best be efficient and effective, right, to get to market. And so you're going to see kind of uh, crossing of, of categories or blurring lines, you know, in terms of which distributor is working with which product, but also the broader theme with like non-alc, de-alc, right, crossover products. So there's kind of in multiple ways um, we're seeing things open up a bit more where it was a, a bit more strictly defined uh, in, in the past. Mm -hmm. It also, Deborah, makes sense for the beer guys to handle the RTDs. It, it really does. They, they're, they're more proficient at handling cans and handling that case, that size case, that's what they're delivering. It just makes a lot of logistical sense. They, they've got the, you know, the, the bandwidth and the um, background in those products. It doesn't matter what's in the can, whether it's soda, seltzer, FMB, or an RTD or beer, it, it handles in the same manner. So it makes a lot of sense. You're absolutely yep. right, Mary. And even look at the merchandising, right? Because it's not yeah. just getting the cases in, but then, RTDs are now in the cold case, right? Now we're talking about a whole nother competitive shelf space is that yep. cold case, right? Exactly. And merchandising, all of that takes a lot of staff. Right. And and beer has that staff. They're used to doing that with beer, whereas the you know spirit guys may not be quite as proficient in that. So it does make a lot of sense. And not to say that the wine and spirit houses aren't getting better at this, but it does make sense that that is who's you know leading the charge there. I mean, it, and it's things as simple as packing a, a truck with glass 750 bottles and then some pallets of cans creates a host of issues um, logistically. And so, yeah, it does make a lot of sense. I agree with that, Marianne. Yeah, absolutely. Marianne, long-term premiumization, where do you see that going before we go into the next topic? Well, you know, it all plays into the low and no alc statements, right? People are thinking about drinking less, so they want to drink something better. If they're going to go out and have one cocktail, they want that really interesting dynamic back to the mezcal, mezcal cocktail versus a simple spirit and soda, 
right? If you're only going to have one, you're going to go for, for broke here. You, you can pay a little bit more for it if you're only having one and you want something that's really going to, you know, be appealing to you both visually and, and taste-wise, right? And that carries through in all categories, right? Like you can go for that more expensive glass of wine if you're going to have one. And the same thing with beer, you know, beer seems like they got left out of this whole thing, but there is a premiumization available in beer also, and people are trading up. They're not as interested in buying the beer that you drink in quantity <laughs> as much as having something maybe a little higher ABV and one really good beer, right? So, so I think, you know, people look at the low and no alk and they're like, oh, how's this going to affect beverage alcohol? But it isn't necessarily going to be a bad effect Certainly in the premiumization space, I think it's a good effect. I think people will opt for the higher prices because they're drinking a little bit less. Yeah, I think. And we've been seeing that trend um, definitely for the last couple of years. You know, one of the opportunities that we want to talk about is that there is a growth in socially conscious consumers. So I know there's a question from Howard about uh, millennials, Gen Z. We do know that Gen Z is probably the most socially conscious consumer that's come into the consumer base recently. This is a very, very, I mean, and they're socially conscious on a lot of levels, right? When it comes to climate change and sustainability and diversity and the values of companies, this generation is really scrutinizing companies, brands, where they come from, how they're made and everything. I think that that also gives us opportunity and opportunity to tap into a new market with diverse suppliers. I don't know how many people on this call are familiar with supplier diversity programs. Just going to throw out a few little statistics. So back in the, the middle 1960s, early 70s, the civil rights movement, they started certifications for minority groups to be able to level the playing field. Um, so you don't just have large companies monopolizing. Well, this is also happening in Bethel for people that don't know. And so diverse suppliers are uh, suppliers that are uh, BIPOC, LGBTQI+, women, veteran, and disabled. And we are seeing more and more major corporations increasing their allocations and commitment to spend money on diverse suppliers. So this is a new market opportunity because we're seeing a lot of new suppliers coming into the game. You mentioned, you know, Marianne, Latin America, all these products are really hot. If they are being made, there's diversity in those makers, there's diversity in those owners. Um, just to give you an idea, this is money that is allocated and by the shareholders, stakeholders and company, these supplier diversity procurement teams are being told to spend this money in 2024. So um, this is money we want to redirect to Bev Alp that traditionally hasn't. Um, in 2022, Hilton spent $334 million on diverse suppliers. Marriott spent $660 million. The Walt Disney Company just increased their diversity spend goal from $800 million to $1 billion annually by 2024. MGM Resorts spent $4.6 billion with diverse-owned suppliers last year. Target has committed to $2 billion in Black-owned businesses, and Walmart has spent over $13 billion. That's just a select few of stats here. And 
the fact that these diversity, sustainability, and other things are really a growing, a growing trend. So question for you, Ian, how do you see, you know, transparency, diversity, sustainability, all becoming something that brands need to make sure that they're uh, out there marketing and differentiating themselves? Great question. And it's something that I'm really passionate about also. And it's great in my role specifically, I get to talk to people who are creating brands. So to ask them these types of questions and considerations before they get involved is really, really important. So I think with today's societal issues like politics, climate, inequality, diversity, whatever it, 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 the topic is, like people want to have an impact and it can be difficult because you're one person, like how can I change the world? But one easy way is to shop for like-minded brands. So helping people who are helping others and you're contributing even though a small part of it and you're able to tell your friends, your family, anyone who'll listen to you um, and really champion that and kind of really bring back kind of brand loyalty that's been really lost over the last number of years. Um, with a lot of people just like with the blurred lines and category crossing, it's been very hard to retain folks and um, with especially all of the innovations. So I think this is definitely an area that people should be trying to get involved in as best as they can. Um, and whether you're a new brand or an existing brand. So it might be easier as a new brand to implement these kind of changes because you're building it from the ground up. But then the challenges are the expense of sustainable materials, papers, producing the correct way to like have a less impact on the planet. And then it can be challenging for heritage brands also because they have to change the mindset of many people and many cogs in the machine to be able to kind of change business directions and whatnot too. But I think with everyone's access to the internet, people want to know as much as they can about the brand. So anyone that has a good story to tell um, about their people, the, the, the people are involved in making it, the liquids, all of the all of the, the impacts and how it's benefiting whether it's the local um, local folks or whether they're sourcing from sustainable areas, like they need to shout about this because I think it's really going to help diversify um, and separate brands on shelf. Absolutely. And, and, you know, with Women of the Mind and Spirits and also with diverse powered brands, I just want to point out that we have hosted several webinars and things on debunking the myth that you as a smaller brand or a diverse brand or sustainable brand or whatever can't get into some of the large, you know, national accounts. And uh, we've had Costco come on board and Target come on board and things. And I just want to point out when I give some of those statistics about MGM, they do source local. They do look at local brands that are sustaining their community and other things. And Ian, like you said, you know, they really want to know more about their brands. If something is made in an area, if somebody has inroads in that particular local market, don't be afraid to go out to some of the bigger retailers because they do look. And, and specifically, I know like with Target, they, you know, will look at where the founders of these brands reside and put them into local areas so that they can work the market. So we see a lot of really new opportunities, to your point, Ian, for new brands, emerging brands, but also for existing brands, just, just to bring up that point. So a question for all, DTC and e-commerce has been a big focus in the recent years. How do we see that affecting the industry in 2024? A lot of compliance issues and producers to make sure that they're being compliant. So we're seeing DTC on one side, and then we're seeing e-commerce, and then we're also seeing our wholesalers uh, really dive more into their e-commerce platforms. Ryan, do you want to start kicking that off? Sure. Thanks, Deborah. So on the DTC front in 2024, I don't see anything 
like large fundamental structural changes, right, that are, are going to happen in, in the, the 12 months in front of us. But, you know, long term, I think consumers are interested in expansion of DTC, right? And that's inclusive of spirits. And generally, eventually, the consumer wins out on, on preferences. And so I think over the medium and long term, we'll see something to the effect of that inside of our existing three-tier system, which has created this vibrant, successful marketplace uh, for beverage alcohol and, and all of our, our partners in the industry. But that's something to monitor, but probably not for, for 2024. DTC wine, I, I think in the year, um, you know, we're, we're coming off two years back to back, first time since this has been tracked where DTC wine has declined in the US uh, in terms of volume. And so uh, there's an opportunity for it to start to bottom out there and, and level up. And I could see a, a small gain. Thinking about e-commerce, this is going to continue to be a big trend. I mean, Deborah, you mentioned it, right? There's you know some really powerful numbers from RDC's e-commerce platform. We're seeing expansion of different parties like Speakeasy and, and other partnerships that are happening across the industry. 2020, obviously with the pandemic, there was an explosion for, for e-commerce, you know, having it grow 40%, but you're seeing double-digit growth in 2019 as well as in, in 2021. So I Ultimately, we're going to continue to see that be a trend. It will, I think, start to start to kind of moderate and, and kind of get to that post-pandemic normalization as we got through that super cycle. But you know, I think IWSR is still projecting it. You know, like we said, 40 billion by by 2026, as Marianne highlighted. That it does not feel that far away at this point, right? Time is flying, so it's definitely something to keep. If you're a producer, a focus on and, and how you think about your your go-to-market strategy and, and how to how to sell your brand through that channel. Wonderful. Marianne, do you have anything to add? Yeah. So like Scott mentioned earlier and Ryan mentioned, we continue to see the decrease on the wine side, but on the other side of the coin, we're seeing increases for beer cider and RTDs. And they're expected to have some pretty quick growth and account for, according to IWSR, about a quarter of online sales by again that really close year 2026 which is you know just a stone's throw out here so back to the economy you know people's disposable incomes are shrinking they're maybe going out a little bit less so they want things to come to the home so there that interest and that demand for DTC I don't think it's going anywhere I don't think it's replacing our typical go to the store and pick something up, but it's certainly a way people want to try things and get things that maybe aren't available as readily in their area. So I, I agree with Ryan, it's gonna, it's not gonna expand to a, a huge number right this second, but it's definitely something that's on the rise and needs to be watched, especially beginning a brand. Yeah, and before I go to you, Scott, on the compliance side, <laughs> um, there is a, a question from, from Billy and, do you have a DTC platform that's for spirit-based DTCs that you recommend? Is there a particular DTC platform that's doing well with, with that category? So we we like to stay agnostic on a lot of things, yeah. and that would definitely be one of them. I think the platform is just like with everything else in uh, selling a product, the platform is as good as your participation, right? So if you've got a great social media presence, sending someone to speakeasy or sending them to reserve bar or whatever else there is out there, 
then it will be successful. It really, you have to look at the platform, make sure their logistics make sense, make sure they're hitting the markets that you want to hit. And then the next step is yourself, right? Just like, you know, you can pick the best distributor in the country, but if you're not going to support them, that product is not making it to the shelf. And you can be in the best retailer, but if you're, and you know, and be the biggest star there is out there, the, you know, the biggest celebrity. But if you're not going to go out there and do signings and tastings and talk about it on social media and have the bottle sitting next to you when you go on Kimmel or Stephen Colbert, right? Like it's not going to go anywhere. Just putting your name on something. Believe me, we've had a lot of those celebrities over the years <laughs> who think their name or their face, that's it, done, finished. It's going to be great. And we've all drank a lot of that product because it didn't go anywhere. So uh, I really think, you know, choosing the platform, check the logistics, check the markets they're in, and then you need to do the rest. Yeah, I'll just add to that, you know, for RTDs and in RTD spirit, it's another area where the competition is incredibly intense in terms of, of new entrants and expansion. And so we're already starting to see some of that churn, right, in, in terms of the, those brands that will likely continue. So what Marianne's highlighting is is just absolutely critical because there's so much competition, you have to really invest in and find the right places to be that support your brand, your story, what what your core is, and then and make sure you're putting the the work in to help aid that demand generation because just because you're on a, a platform doesn't equate to sales. And now going to Scott for some of the compliance side of all of this, right? Yeah. Um, simply, uh, before you jump in on it, it's coordinating with a legal team internally or a legal team externally that has expertise in beverage alcohol, as well as with state regulators. Those are a great start to ensuring compliance. Obviously, there's a lot of precautions in place when it comes to making sure products don't end up in the wrong hands, uh, which includes age restrictions, and requirements for ID and signature upon delivery. But using a highly respected and a regulated company to assist you in DTC is, is really the way to go. And as names that were mentioned earlier, Reserve Bar, Speakeasy, but there's also Sobo Ship Compliant. But those are precautions that should be taken before you really jump into it. Excellent point, because the legalities and how things have been changing over the years, definitely yeah. want to make sure there's so many, I mean, uh, yeah. laws changing, things being flexible. You want to make sure that you're checking all of this out before you, you jump in. Jack has a question that is beautifully segue into our question, Jack, because we were going to start talking about this now. So thank you. The percentage of people trying to reduce alcohol consumption fell by 18% to 38% in 2022. This decline is significant, yet media attention to dry January and sober curiosity increased. How can all beverage partners, be it on-premise accounts, hotels, retailers, producers, innovate? And will there be a saturation point? A lot there. A lot, a lot there. Yes. Let's start off with the dry and yeah. anti-alcohol sentiment that's out there and, and the sober curious. And that's always going to exist, you know, especially, you know, with the new year and you got your resolutions and you everybody ate too much and drank too much for the six weeks prior. So there's always going to be that dry January talk and I'm looking for health and wellness and, you know, and then, you know, you're also a little broke after the holidays. So you want to cut down on your spending. That's an easy place to, you know, cut down. 
But that being said, we do like to go out. We do like to have a good time. So there's lots of ways, even while people are in that headspace for the hospitality industry to take advantage of it and not shy away from it and provide options, right? I mean, you go out now and how many um, cocktail menus have a whole page or at least a good section of non-alc cocktails, right? Sometimes I look at those and I think, gee, if they'd add a little gin, that sounds pretty good, right? Like they, <laughs> some of them are, are better sounding than what what's on the other list. Or I've been in a lot of places um, with a pregnant daughter where she, where they didn't have a list like that. And they said to her, tell me what you like. What's your normal cocktail of choice? And I'll make you something to mimic it. And they certainly did. So I think embracing that with your bar staff and your maitre d's and your, um, you know, uh, psalms, embracing the fact that people will still spend money on something that tastes good. So don't walk away from it. There's lots of ways to go hand in hand with the low and no, right? No one's saying, you know, you don't really hear a whole lot of in January, I'm going to give up alcohol forever. They call it dry January for a reason, right? You're planning to come back. So keep them invested, keep them interested by offering some interesting cocktails with maybe less spirit or a non-out spirit. You know, you also got, you know, coming up again in these years that are really close in 2025, the number of 65 plus will surpass the number of 21 to 34. That sounds good to me because that's where I live. But, you know, how do you, you know, there's lots of opportunity to market to them as well. We're still a pretty heavy drinking population, but we all do have to start thinking at this point in our lives about, you know, wanting to not have to check out before we hit all these statistics in 27 and 30, right? So we have to start thinking about our health. So the low and no becomes very interesting to us. That one really good cocktail when we go out becomes very interesting. So I think that's a new mindset is to start thinking about that. And, you know, you can still make a lot of money on a very expensive A cocktail, right? So mm -hmm. that's some of what I'm seeing. Just uh, hitting a little bit on regulatory, and then I know we have some other questions. Scott, or just for the audience, um, just a quick thing, because we're talking about regulatory shifts. Are there some major regulatory shifts that the attendees need to be aware of for 2024? Sure, and, and I think some everybody on here will probably know on the federal side of the Craft Beverage Modernization Tax and Reform Act, which started in January 23, the TTB took over responsibility for administering the, the tax benefits. It, went, it transitioned from a tax uh, to a tax refund rather than a reduced uh, entry tax rate upon importation. So foreign suppliers were had to register, importers had to go through the MyTTB website to register. So it, it's, it's, it's tracked uh, more closely by the TTB than it was in the past. Also at the federal level, believe it or not, the USDA has now mandated that importers who import organic products must be certified organic as well. Even though importers are handling consumer-ready packaging and they're not touching the liquid in its raw form and bulk, they still have to be organically certified. So there's a process now to engage with a, uh, a certifying agency and literally, it's more of a record keeping for importers because you're really not touching raw materials, but you do have to be certified. Uh, that is going to affect 
I believe it's March 19th, but that date is, I, I guess enforcement will take some time before customs catches up and before the USDA catches up. But it is it is mandated that any importer is now considered a handler and must be organically certified. On the state level, there is the uh, California bottle bill, meaning products that enter into the state of California uh, have to have the CRV labeling on it. It will be uh, strictly enforced, formally enforced, July 1st, uh, 2025, but product filled and labeled from now uh, on should be have that California CRV on it. Uh, another thing to keep in mind, states are looking at parity as far as taxes go with RTDs. So if you have a, a distilled spirit at 5% and wine 5%, distilled spirits is paying more. So a lot of this, this movement afoot to try to get gain some parity there. Wonderful. So question in the chat, Scott, will MHW qualify as an importer? We, we are an importer of cons and packages consumer ready, and we are in the process of getting organically certified. And that includes having an on-site inspection of our, you know, there's, there's no product here, but it'll be an on-site <laughs> inspection of our record keeping. Now, it's okay. a little counterintuitive because the the warehouses that store the products, so if you use a public warehouse, technically, they do not have to be certified organic, even though they handle the product. It is the, by the regulations, the importer is considered a handler. So we import some organic products, not, not all of our portfolio is organic, but for our clients. But if we handle anything that's labeled organic, even it said made with organically uh, grown grapes, we have to be certified organic. Good to know and good to know that MHW will qualify for those. Yeah, we 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 are required to. It's not. Yeah. Well, yeah. for everybody, what are some of your top predictions for business success? So I mentioned the growth of socially conscious consumers, buyers looking for diverse suppliers, opportunity to tap into allocated money with diverse power brands and 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 supplier diversity programs. Ryan, do you have some comments on that? Yeah, um, you know, I already kind of touched on it a little bit, but the I, I do think the inventory cycle and the pressures that we're seeing from inflation going to continue in in 2024. So that level of communication, working across your partners to to make sure you're avoiding becoming out of stock or being in issues where you're, you're going to miss depletions is going to be critical. I, I, I think that intense focus on your core right both from uh you know how how do i how am i most efficient here what do i you know what is resonating with my consumer putting that focus on it thinking about you know all of your lines and skews um is critical but also you know we had that question about where uh, demand going to come from Gen Z and younger generations or with some of these other trends that we're seeing a lot of this ties back to like that authenticity that that consumers are demanding and looking for. So continuing a real focus about how you tell your story and, and where you tell it um, is gonna be important for, for all, all products looking to be sold in 2024. Absolutely, Marianne, you wanna to touch on yeah. social media with that? Yeah, so definitely coming off of what Ryan said, you know, the role of social media and brand building is uh, going to continue to be very strong and just continue to get stronger and stronger, especially with the, you know, the younger folks. Um, but it's it's really crossing boundaries and, and age categories. It's really, I think, a since, again, going back to the pandemic, 
it's become a much better way to get things in front of people. And as Ian was talking about earlier, the story really matters. And we've always said that to folks, but now you've got this vehicle to get the story out there, whether it's sustainable or there's diversity or you're environmentally conscious or you're donating back some of your profits to something, some uh, you know cause, uh, political cause or um, you know economic cause. It's really important, and social media does give you that platform. It gives you the platform to show great presentation of a product, right, with like really interesting garnishes and really interesting glassware to be served in. There's all types of opportunity to get people's curiosity and conversation going, but it really ties back to that whole the Gen Zs being so socially conscious. You can really, really, you know get on that track by giving them what they're looking for and getting that story out there, right? We've all always talked about for all products, the story. If you got a good story, get it out there, talk about it. But now I think even more so, we now have a generation that's really conscious of where the products are coming from and how. And back to that whole concept of maybe going out and getting that one drink, right? So you want to get something that's really incredible, right? And this is where you can illustrate that to folks. And someone was asking before about, you know, finding women whiskey drinkers. Well, the one thing that we're seeing at MHW is a ton more women bringing us whiskey products and being, you know, the whiskey maker, right? So that's been really incredible the last couple of years and, and just growing exponentially. You know, when I go back 27 years, when Scott and I used to sit in these potential client meetings, it was all men all the way down the line. That was one of the really interesting things, Deborah, when you were one of our clients and going for this women of the vine and only buying wine from women winemakers, there weren't that many of them, <laughs> right? We've come a really long way in the last 20 years. And really in the last like five, we're just seeing tremendous, tremendous change but again, if you're not telling that story, it's great that I know it, but you've got to get that story out there on social media and, you know, you can't turn away from it. And it really became important and it's a new way to build brands, right? You don't necessarily only build them in the on-premise like we used to think. You've got to get on that social media bandwagon and you've got to be moving and shaking on that and getting influencers involved. A lot of wines now you see reaching out and using influencers because it's it's helping, right? You know, it's a category that needs some assistance right now, and the influencers are really getting it out there. So those are some of the things I see. Yeah, Deborah, if I can jump in, and I don't want to squash Marianne's enthusiasm here, but on the compliance side, okay, keep in He's mind. He's always that's... right there with the compliance. <laughs> I, I, I know. Keep, keep in mind. Keep in mind that the TTBs high, highly regulates advertising and promotional materials, and social media is an extension of that. So the way I could put it is don't do or say anything that otherwise would be rejected had it appeared on a label. So you can't uh, if it's, you can't put on a label that if you drink this, you're going to live to 100. Certainly, you don't want to say it in your advertising and promotional materials. You have to be very careful what you say and how you say it, how you present it to make sure it meets federal advertising guidelines. Great I hope point. I didn't I hope I didn't bring the room down on that one. But no, it's a good point. A good point. We, you know, we always need our, our regulatory people to, to keep us straight because, you know, especially as entrepreneur marketer, I want to 
get out there and do all kinds of out of the box ideas, but right. uh, don't right. want to get slapped by the TTV. So, yeah, we, we, we <laughs> just a quick note we had a client that put in uh, their PR agency put out in a, in a publication that their tequila cures the flu. And obviously, any kind of medical reference is not allowed. It's prohibited. And we happen to be the import of the product. We were unaware that the client put it out there. And the TTB called us and said, did you see this article? I go, I did not. <laughs> and obviously, I called the client and the client blamed it on his PR agency. But the TTB is out there looking at websites. They're looking at social media sites. If you have like an Instagram, things like that, there's certain mandatory information that has to appear on the, on one of the pages. So you got to be very cognizant of that because the TTB is monitoring that. You know, Scott, be careful because I have Olivia on this call with me from Women of the Vine and Spears. I think we may want to invite you back if you want to do a another live chat on social media regulatory, because I think a lot of people on this call is going, oh my God, I need to understand more before I make some false claims and get the TTB after me. I think I uh, agreed to Cassidy. I do one webinar a year, but maybe I can fit it on. <laughs> oh, there we go, Cassidy. Yeah, I'm not, you I'm heard not, it. Uh, you heard it. <laughs> I don't find myself camera ready, so. <laughs> kind of goes back to what you said, Scott, before about the um, direct consumer. Before you launch on any of these things, seek out the advice of, you know, an expert in the field, right? Scott's my conscience. Like I can advise people to do all kinds of stuff, but I always run it by Scott first. And, you know, there are lots of folks like MHW and there's other platforms, uh, ship compliant, where you can check in on what you're doing, right? Like don't just assume, make sure you're, you're running things up the flagpole and getting the right advice on that stuff. I just want to thank everybody for attending. I want to thank the panelists for being here and sharing your expertise from MHW and, and everything that you do. You know, I think there's a lot that's going to be happening in 2024 because there's so much going on in the world that we want to have these conversations more frequently. But thank you so much for being here. I look forward to seeing everybody again very soon. Have a great rest of your day. And that will wrap our listening session of the Abridged MHW Trends and Forecasts webinar. This is an annual event among many, so make sure you follow MHW on social media to catch all of the goings-on. Those links will be in the show notes. Thank you, listeners, for joining us on the MHW Mark podcast. This podcast is produced by me, Jimmy Moreland, with booking and planning support by Cassidy Poe. It's presented by MHW. Find out more at mhwltd.com or connect with MHW on LinkedIn. Lend us a hand by subscribing, rating, and reviewing this podcast wherever you listen. We'll be back in your feed in two weeks. We'll see you then. Cheers. Cheers.